What a privilege it is that we get to continue to worship this morning by reading out of God's word. We're going to be in uh, the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. All right, you got your Bible in uh, Romans 12? That's where we're going to be, Romans 12, 1 through 8 this morning. The theme of the book of Romans, the theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. It generally. I'd stick by that pretty closely. The theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. What's the gospel? Hopefully you're familiar with it, but here we go. Real quick, here's the gospel. God created the world, universe, everything in it. He made everything. If it exists, he made it, he owns it, deal with it. We rebelled against him. Why? Because we didn't like the fact that he was God. We wanted to be God. So we rebelled against him. We said, we'll do it our way. Well, we want God as your stuff, but not you. Can we work that deal out? And uh, so we disobeyed God. The result of our sin and disobedience is death. Everybody dies. The fix to that problem was Jesus came and died as a substitute on our behalf. So he takes upon himself the punishment for our sins. And he raises from the dead three days later, giving us the ability to live forever with him if we trust him. And we know that one day God will once again restore everything back to the way it was supposed to be. God created, we rebelled against him, Jesus came and provided a way for salvation when we trust in him, and then one day everything will be restored the way it ought to be. There's the gospel. Good news, Jesus saves sinners. The way Romans is laid out, Romans 1 through 11, and I can summarize it this way, is here's what the gospel looks like in a whole bunch of different ways. And then Romans 12 to the end of the book, Romans 12 through 16, is since the gospel is true, Having believed it, how then should you live? Romans 1 through 11, here's the gospel. Romans 12, which is what we're starting today. How then should we live having believed the gospel? And here's what we need to understand. The gospel is not a tune-up. Here's what we're going to discover. The gospel is not a tune-up. If you have an old car and it's running rough, you might open up the hood, you might uh, time, do the timing on it, you might replace the spark plugs, maybe the spark plug wires, you might uh, work on the carburetor or the uh, fuel filter, you're going to tune it up to get the old car running better. The gospel is not a tune-up. The gospel is a whole new car. It's a brand new car, and it's a whole different thing. What, what most of us want from the gospel is say, listen, my life is pretty good, 
but there's some areas of disenchantment I have, some lack of significance. I feel like there isn't meaning. What does it all mean? Midlife crisis, yada, yada, yada. You know what I do? Add getting up early on Sunday morning to hang out with Christians to my routine, and that should tune things up a little bit. Guess what? That's a terrible idea, but that's what people try. So we're going to mix in a little bit of Jesus into the otherwise normal routine of my life, and I'm going to try to tune up my life. And what the gospel says is, uh, I'm not a tune-up, I'm a whole new thing. And we need to look at that. It's a whole new car. The gospel changes everything. That's the title of the message today. If you like titles, you like writing stuff down. The gospel changes everything. We're going to look at two ways it changes everything today. First one, the gospel changes everything. It gives us a new way to think about God. Romans 12, 1 and 2, the gospel gives us a new way to think about God. Let's think about how we think about God. What were you taught growing up about how God, what God is like? Here's a, a normal way people are taught about God is God is generally generally in a bad mood. And the way in which God to be nice to you is to do stuff he likes and to avoid doing stuff he doesn't like. If you do stuff God doesn't like, he will punish you. The theological term for that is he will smack you upside the head. If you do stuff he likes, you will be blessed. Right? So we try to avoid naughty things. And we try to do things God likes because we don't want to be punished and we want to experience God's blessing. And the gospel gives us a whole new way of thinking about God that says that is theological malarkey. Let's look at it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Stop there. By the mercies of God. So what we need to understand about God, according to the gospel... God is not seeking our ability to appease him through following a set of law code or moral codes. What he is seeking is worship that is a response to mercy he has already given. Let me rephrase that by saying it exactly the same way. God is not seeking appeasement by us following some sort of moral law code. What God desires is people to worship him as a response to mercy that has already been given. Pay attention to what I said there because it's really important you didn't hear the wrong thing. We don't worship him to gain mercy. I didn't say that, did I? What did I say? Because it's biblical. We worship him because of mercy that has already been given. And that is critically important to what we understand in the gospel. And the, the primary way in which worship occurs in this passage is through transformation. Worship as becoming like Jesus. Okay, so let's sum it all up again. Then we, I mean, basically, if you get it, we can just dismiss. Here's what it is. God is not seeking appeasement, where people seek to appease him through some sort of law code following. What he is seeking is worship that is a response to, to mercy he has already given, and that worship primarily expressed as being transformed into being like Jesus. Okay, that's where we're going. So, verses 1 and 2, let's go. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's an expression of worship. let We'll first at Romans 5.8. We've looked at this before, and you're probably familiar with this verse, but let me read it. It might be up on the screen, might not be. You probably have it memorized. 
God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's a, it's a time statement. When did Christ die for us? Not sure question. Yeah, there you go. While we were still sinners. Jesus didn't die for It wasn't this. We're in our sin and we're sinning away. Yay, sin. Oh, it's a bummer. It's not as awesome as we thought. You know what we need? We need God. So we scurry over to God. God, we discovered sin is lame. Will you save us? And he goes, I thought you'd never ask. I'll send Jesus. Welcome to the inside of my brain on a daily basis. I'm sorry, but this is, <laughs> this is how it happens. That's not what happened. We love it if that happened that way because it means we realized, we, we realized we needed to be saved. That's not what happened. What happened? While we were still sinning, God sent Jesus to die for us. While we were in a headlong flight of rebellion away from God as fast as we could, in that moment, Christ died for us. What do we call that? That's mercy. That's the kind of mercy that God is extending to us. We need to understand the gospel tells us what God is like. The gospel says, good news, Jesus died for sinners. Not because we had great potential, not because we wanted to get over it, not because we saw the error of our ways. God sent Jesus, God in the flesh, to die for sinners. And, and a recognition of mercy is saying, I understand what God is like. He's not seeking appeasement. He's taking the initiative to make a way for sinners to find him, not the reverse. What we have to recognize about worship is when we fail to understand the nature and extent of God's mercy, it will be nearly impossible for us to be moved to worship God. Because what Romans 12, go back to Romans 12, 1 and 2, what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is telling us, come to an understanding of what God's mercy is like, and that is the, the fuel that will move us to worship God. As long as our, we have a limited view of God's mercy, we will have a limited uh, effort or motivation to worship God. Let's put it this way. As long as God needs to be appeased in our minds, it's going to be very difficult to worship Him the way the Bible calls us to. But what the Bible calls us to do is see God in a whole new way. Worship recognizes who took the initiative in our, in our salvation. It was God who extended mercy to rebellious sinners. So what does our response look like? Look at the second part of verse 1 of Romans 12. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Okay, so how, this is very, very simple. Maybe a lot of fancy words in there, but it's really, really simple. Use your body for God's glory. That's a pretty good summary of that, isn't it? Use your body, do stuff with your body that brings glory to God. As a living sacrifice, good news, we don't have to do human sacrifice. First of all, good news. Living sacrifices mean I worship God not by killing myself, that's ridiculous, the Bible never calls for that. I worship God with the manner in which I live. A living sacrifice where I say, my life is not mine, my life belongs to God. Since my life is His, how then should I live? It's to live a life of holiness that is acceptable to God because of his mercy, not to gain his mercy. And the order of that is very, very, very important. Look what the last phrase of that is. It's your spiritual worship. I had trouble reading this. Pat did a much better job reading this. I read it during the first service, and I did it terrible because I memorized it in a different version. Have you ever done that? You memorize it in one version, then you're reading it, and you're like, this is all wrong. 
Yeah, you know, the Apostle Paul wrote this in the, in the King James or the NIV, whatever your favorite is, and this is the ESV. So what, my, what the ESV says, it's your spiritual worship. You might have another version that says it is your reasonable act of worship. That word that's used there includes both of those. In fact, a great way to think of it is it's reasonable that this is your spiritual act of worship. So what is it? What he's telling us is this. When we come to understand God's mercy, and then we say, well, I want to live my life in holiness in a way that's acceptable to God, that seems reasonable it, to, as, a, as an expression of worship to God. Maybe you can put it this way. You say, you know, sometimes I look at what God, how God expects people to live, and it seems kind of strict, seems kind of unreasonable. I mean, let's think of a couple of things. Pray without ceasing. Seems kind of unreasonable, right? You'll give generously. Okay, I can give, but when we hit generously, I mean, let's simmer down. I mean, I need to buy milk, right? In a boat. <laughs> Only have sex with the person you're married to. That's probably a friendly crowd, but most of the, most of the world is say, that's crazy. That, that's, absolutely, that's absolutely crazy. That's, that's unreasonable. And what the Bible says, actually, when we come to a full recognition of God's mercy, what God calls us to do as an act of worship is extraordinarily reasonable. So if you're saying what God expects of me, what God is asking me to say no to, and what God is asking me to say yes to, that seems a little bit unreasonable. The issue is not that he's asking for something unreasonable. The issue is, according to the Bible here, I haven't recognized the value of his mercy. Because when I recognize what his mercy is like, what God calls me to do as an act of worship seems reasonable. That's what it, it's saying here. And to use my body as a, as a vessel to bring God delight and to bring God glory is reasonable in light of his mercy. Look at verse 2. How do we do it? So the question is, what do we do? We worship God because of his mercy. How do we do that? It tells us here, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is good, excuse me, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So how, excuse me, how do we worship God with our life? First thing is we need to be transformed. So the first thing we need to recognize about a life of worship that's a response to God's mercy is it starts with the inner person. It doesn't start with the outer person. We're thinking, you may be thinking, well, in order to bring God glory as an act of worship, I need to do something or not do something with my, with my body. I need to do something good or refrain from doing something evil. But actually, the starting point is the inner person is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, to have our hearts and minds made like Jesus. How do we do that? Through the Word of God, through prayer, through engagement and relationship with other believers, and finally, the biggest uh, tool uh, in the New Testament for making us like Jesus, it's your favorite one, what is it? Suffering. I mean, go read your New Testament. It's, on, it's nearly on every page. Suffering happens, and as a result, we are made and pressed in, into the image of Jesus. So over the course of our life, the Word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit and relationship with others, and the realities of living in a broken world, we're conformed into the image of Jesus on the inner person. 
We say no to sin because we're like Jesus inside. And we say yes to doing what's good is because Jesus' work is flowing uh, from the inner person. It's a new way of thinking. It's a new way of seeing God. Look at the opposite of this in Romans 1.28. It's uh, Romans 1.28. Here's what it says when we're not transformed. This is what it looks like prior to the work of God in our hearts. Romans 1.28 says this, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So where is sin flowing from in the heart of the unbeliever? Is it just merely behavior? No, it's flowing from a mind that hasn't been made into the, transformed to be like Jesus. So where is uh, holiness flowing from in the life of the believer? Is it because you're awesome? because you're amazing, because you're the best Christian ever? No, it's because Christ is forming himself in you. So this is something we have to understand. It's both a choice that we make to worship God with our life, but we recognize the source of it is God changing us in the inner person to be more and more like Christ over time. Another way of saying this, we can't live a life that brings pleasure to God or is an act of worship to God without the work and power of God. Uh, let me think of it another way. I, I really uh, don't know if you're getting it. Are you getting it? doesn't matter. I'm going to say it another way anyway. Some of us in the room have been a Christian longer than 10 minutes, maybe longer than 10 years, maybe longer than 10 decades. I won't say who. And, and you know, if God has been so gracious in your life, you probably, if you've been a Christian for very long at all, you probably look over the course of your life and, you know, and, you, and you've, seen, you've seen growth. Maybe you love the Word of God more than you used to. Maybe you find yourself praying more than you used to. Maybe there are some really pretty significant sin habits, which used to be a really big hang-up, and now you look back and you're like, you know, I don't do that anymore. And, and you look over the course of your life, and you see some of these little bit, and you may not notice them in the short term, but maybe over the course of your life, you look, wow, I... I really see how God has been working and changing me over the course of my life. And then you get to a certain point, and then you look at some other believer that God has chosen for whatever reason not to have in the same place you are, and you go, oh, what's that guy's problem? So have you ever done that? One author says it this way, there's nothing more irritating on planet Earth than another Christian who sins differently than me. So we, we're, God is doing his work by his power to change us into the image of Jesus and another Yahoo comes along that for whatever reason God has them in this place in their life and we look at him and say, why can't he be awesome like me? And when we actually recognize what's happening here, the transformation even is a work of God and we by obedience are merely trusting God and engaging with that through, through obedience. So be transformed. It's a lifelong process of having the inner person changed. The, the, the danger here for many Christians is to be religious instead of transformed. What is religious? I'm having trouble seeing the inner person change, or maybe I'm not interested in changing the inner person. So what I'll do is on the outside, I'm going to be very thorough in my religion. So I'm going to attend church regularly. I'm going to memorize verses. I'm going to try and not to cuss in front of people. All these sort of normal things. The inside, though... There's no transformation happening. I'm merely trying to uh, fit into a religious mold. And that's not what the Bible is calling for here. What the Bible is calling for here is a heart level change. The Old Testament called it circumcision of the heart. Meaning I am being conformed to be like God. The psalmist says this, this way. He says, don't be like a mule. 
Don't be like a mule who has to be led by a bit and a bridle. Have you ever had to lead a mule by bit and bridle? I haven't either. Apparently that's hard. What does he want us to be like? Does he want us to have to be led by bit and bridle? No, he says, because the psalmist is informing his son what it looks like to worship God. He says, no. Worship God from the heart. Don't, don't make it that God has to tell you, do this, don't do this, do this. Don't. He wants us changed in the inner man so we understand what God is up to and we're able to discern the direction his purposes are going. Go back to Romans 12 too if you're not already there. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may test and discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Religion asks this question, what can I get away with? Religion asks this question, what can I get away with? Transformation asks this question, what is good? What's acceptable? What, man, what would, what would God be into in this situation? Now what can I get away with? What's the minimum necessary requirement to be uh, Christian-y? What's the maximum amount I can sin I can get away with? and still think of myself as a Christian. That's not what this verse is talking about. It's an inner transformation where the questions are all different. What is God into in this particular situation? What, what's, since I know what God is like, and I know what his mercy is like, and I know what the gospel is about, and I see the change that's happening in my heart in this particular moment, what is God into? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Think about the Old Testament just for a minute before we move on to uh, the second part of this. In the Old Testament, the primary place of worship was the temple, thinking after King Solomon, right? So what you would do is several times a year, you'd travel to the temple, you'd take your sacrifice there, you'd offer the sacrifice. And what's really important about the temple, and the same is true of the tabernacle, the decorations in the temple and tabernacle in many ways were to draw the minds of the worshiper back to the Garden of Eden. You got palm trees, you got pomegranates, you got angels, you got all kinds of things. So the idea here is we had been cast out of the Garden of Eden because of our sin, and then we come back into the temple, and in that moment at least, because of the work of God, we experience in some way the presence of God in this Garden of Eden type setting. So we leave the brokenness of the world, we leave the fallenness of the unsanctified and unclean, and we come into the sanctified and the clean, and we enjoy worship of God in some ways in this sort of pristine environment. But then we look at the New Testament believer, and the Bible calls the New Testament believer in the body of Christ the temple of the Lord. And look what it says here. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. So the way we worship God is fundamentally different. We worship God without leaving the brokenness and uncleanness of the world. We worship God in the midst of it. The question is, are we going to worship God through inner transformation, or are we going to allow the world around us to conform us into the image of the world? That's the the fundamental question. Are we going to worship God as his temple, in the midst of a broken and fallen world, or instead are we going to allow the the world to conform us into the image that uh, the world would call us to be? We get the opportunity to worship God in the brokenness of the world as a transformed people awaiting uh, awaiting God's glory. Okay, let's look at verses 3 through 8. The gospel changes everything. First thing we said, it's a new way to think about God, and secondly, it's a new way to think about ourselves. The gospel changes everything. It's a new way to think about ourselves. Think about it this way. If you have to earn God's favor, how will you relate to others? 
If God has to appease, if his favor has to be earned, if you have to do lots of good things to get him to be happy with you, if you have to avoid bad things to keep him from smiting you, how then will you relate to others? And the answer is simply this. What we see throughout the scripture, the manner in which I think I relate to God is how I will expect others to relate to me. If I have to gain God's favor through appeasement and good behavior, then there's every reason to expect I'm going to think the people around me should be seeking my favor through appeasement and achieving the ways in which I think they ought to achieve. So if if God's going to hold me to a particular standard, I'm going to do the same thing for the people around me. What we understand from the Bible is the manner in which we think our relationship with God functions by its very nature flows into the horizontal relationships we have with the people around us. And if God's favor must be earned, so must mine. So if to be good, or I should say, if in order to be successful in God's economy, I have to be good, then I'm going to expect the people around me to be good, to earn my favor. And this results in a number of different things. Some people are really good at being good. Have you noticed this? Some people, they just are. They're just, they're very good at keeping their nose clean. Well, I, or they're very good at hiding it. It's one of the two. And so, so some people are very good at being good. It, it fits their nature to, I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to, I'm going to fill in the, I only want to color inside the lines. And, and as a result, I'm going to expect everybody around me to follow the same rules the way that I do. And if you don't, I'm going to show you my displeasure. Other people aren't very good at following rules. I won't ask you to raise your hand because you wouldn't anyway. Hey, I'm not going to raise my hand. You can't tell me what to do. The only rule you might follow is say, what I'm really good at is tell me what the rule is so I can get the breaking done early. Let's just be done with it. Because I'm not going to follow your rules. And so, so the, the person is really good at following rules. So they're going to be, they're going to expect people to, to obey them and they're going to expect people to meet that same standard. And people who aren't very good at following rules, they're going to, at least if they want a relationship with God, they're going to feel discouraged. Well, how am I supposed to have a relationship with God if he expects me to follow rules? I'm, I don't want to follow any rules. And then this likewise breaks down our relationships with others. So here's the thing. What we're going to discover in the Bible here, in the gospel, we see ourselves in light of God's ministry to us, which is a ministry of mercy. And as a result, we now engage with the people around us as a function of that ministry of mercy. So the, minute, the gospel re- reinforms what our relationship with God is like, which fundamentally should change how we relate with one another. So verse 3 is the main idea. Let's read it. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. Here's the problem. Again, I memorized this verse in a different version. Let me try reading it again. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has given. So the command here is in light of the good news of the gospel, in light of God's mercy, to think rightly about ourselves. To think rightly about ourselves. Not too highly, but soberly in accordance with what God has given us through grace and by faith. So we recognize that God has done the work to bring, him, bring us to himself. And then we say, well, how then do I see myself in relationship with others? If I was dead in my trespasses and sinned and it required Jesus to bring me to life by his initiative and his mercy, how then do I see others? Well, I can't see myself as more spiritual because I was dead. I can't see myself as higher on the spiritual pecking order because I just needed mercy. 
So what it does is we recognize God is the one who has shown mercy, and we see one another as just recipients of God's mercy. To soberly recognize where we fit with one another as an expression of the gospel. That since God receives me by his mercy, we receive one another as an expression of God's mercy. Look at verses 4 and 5. As one body has many members, and not all members have the same function. Do we need to explain how body parts have different functions? So if you have a body, it has different parts. You got an ear, you might have a set. You got an elbow, you got an ankle. These are all different parts and they have different jobs. If you were all ear, that would be weird. It would it'd be kind of creepy. And the problem I have is I have a visual mind and so now I'm visualizing this body with like 30 ears in a bunch. And so it can hear really well, but it really can do nothing else. So in, within the body, within the human body, there's an assortment of different parts. All the parts have different function and the parts are mutually dependent on one another. It's a very, very simple way of understanding the illustration he's using here. Look at the body. The body is uh, lots of different parts with different functions, and those parts are mutually dependent on one another to function as a body. Likewise, verse 5, though we are many in the body of Christ, and individually we are members of one another. So he's saying the body of Christ functions the same way. The body of Christ is a fitting together of the members of that body in view of his mercy, even though the members of that body will be very, very different from one another. In fact, the intention is, by the mercy of God, by the gospel of Christ, for the members of the body of Christ to be different from one another. That's the intention. The job of each individual local body of believers is not to recruit to that local body of believers as many of the same part as possible. And that's exactly what we've been doing now for hundreds of years. Is we have one church where it's everybody who's in the ear. And then a foot shows up at church of ears and all the ears go, you're a weirdo. And you smell funny. How would the ears know? Don't overcomplicate the illustration because there's one nose, okay, fine. And so the foot goes to the churches of the foots because what we do as humans, we want to hang out with people like us. And so what we do is we, we go to a church and, we, and we, we want to hang out at a church and what we do is we approach it like we go into a restaurant. Well, does it have the thing, the thing I like? Listen, I get that and I understand it, but here's the thing. The body of Christ is by definition in the gospel supposed to be a bunch of people who are not alike and our normal default thing is to look for people who are like us. So how in the world are we ever going to function like a body of Christ if all we do is hang out with ears? We might even say it this way. One of the ways we diagnose the effectiveness of the gospel in a local body of believers is over time, the members of that body become more and more different from one another. What are some of the differences? We might have differences in ways we sin. Some of our sin hangups might be different. Uh, you might have differences in how, uh, how well you know the Bible. You might have differences in how you express worship. You might have differences in racial and ethnic background. You might have differences in religious background. We have people who grew up in a church and have been in church and their dad was in a church and their grandfather was a pastor and their great-grandfather was Jesus. I know that doesn't work. 
and then you got and then you got another guy who just got saved off the greenway. But the way churches function nowadays is they don't. We got one church where the guy's getting saved off the greenway, and another church with the people who've been Christian forever. And so what we end up with is a bunch of churches in one city where one church is the ear, one church is the foot, and nothing's working. And a fundamental way the gospel changes a community of believers is it over time draws people into the community of believers are fundamentally different than one another. Well, you say, well, how would that happen? It's almost like God sends people in. It's almost like God sends people in and say, you know, I need you to show up here because this church needs a liver. Every church needs a liver. If it's a you, I'm not, nothing against liver. A little bit of onions, we're good. No, that's, that's terrible. So the liver shows up, and then what does the church of ears do? Well, stop acting so livery. And pretty soon that liver is like, I don't fit. I'm not an ear. And so God, but when the gospel is functioning, when the gospel is working in our lives, when, we, have, when we, we come to this profound understanding of the mercy of God in each of our lives, no matter how long we've known him, when a liver shows up, we go, oh man, un- you are so different than me. I can't believe the ways you are different than me. And we celebrate it. So one of the ways we diagnose whether the gospel has worked in a local body of believers is if over time you've got young people and you've got old people, you've got people from many different racial and ethnic backgrounds, you have many people from different backgrounds on how long they've been a Christian and different kinds of family backgrounds. And we're all called into being conformed to the image of Jesus. As it turns out, this might bother some of you, mostly Seth, not to pick, I picked on you in the first service. When everybody becomes like Jesus, they don't end up being like you. Isn't that astounding? You mean if if everybody was like Jesus, wouldn't they be exactly like me? Oh, thank the Lord, no. Trust me. What we want is a bunch of people becoming like Jesus because them being like Jesus makes them like Jesus different than me and you being like Jesus. And that's how the body is supposed to function. And it can be awkward and weird and uncomfortable and that's the gospel. Awkward and weird and uncomfortable at times. Look at verse 6, 7, and 8. None of that was in my notes. I don't know where that came from. Jeff told me to say it. Having gifts, listen, this is how the, how the gifts work in the body of Christ. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us. So each one who is a believer has uh, gifts God has given them to serve the body of Christ and to serve the community around us. If, you, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, in one who teaches in teaching, in the one who exhorts in his exhortation, in the one who contributes in generosity, in the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. There's another whole list and over in 1 Corinthians 12. You can read through those here. So there's a sampling of some ways that the Holy Spirit works through people. Prophecy, especially in the New Testament, had something to do with knowing what was going to happen in the future. That was a bit of it. But it also had to do with proclaiming the truth of God. What God is up to, especially related to judgment. God is coming. You might want to live in a way that pleases God because he's going to return. Serving, those who serve, this is the gift of a willingness to do what needs to be done. In Acts chapter 7, we see the great gift of the deacons being appointed to provide service to those who didn't have food. It's easy to see who has the gift of serving in our church. On July 4th, we're going to have a cookout sort of thing. At some point, everybody's going to decide it's over. And a bunch of people are going to get up and start putting chairs away. Have you ever seen this happening and go, why are they putting chairs away? 
you don't have the gift of serving. Because the people rolling the tables are going, why aren't you helping us put the chairs away? Because it's moved by God. This is what we do. The thing's got to get done. Who should do it? Well, I should do it. So the people rolling the the tables and chairs away, they're saying, I can't believe these guys are just standing around doing nothing. What they don't see is another guy with a gift of exhortation is talking to a guy over behind a tree. He said, what are you doing? What are you doing? I see what your life is like. And I see what the Bible says, and they're very, very different. What's up with that? And the exhortation is the, is the gift of God to come to a person and say, here's what I see God is like, here's what I see His Word saying, here's what I see going on in your life, explain to me the difference, and what can I do to help those things become closer together? That's exhortation. It's an encouragement to call a spade a spade, to say, I know what Jesus is like, and I know what you are like, and those things need to get closer together. And what can I do to be a part of the process to draw you closer? Teaching is one who understands the Word of God, says how it shows up in our life. One who contributes to do so generously. Some of us have the gift. We have been, number one, blessed with financial resources. Secondly, it's a great privilege and joy to give that away. And that's a, that's a gift. Some are given the gift of leadership. They know where we ought to go and how we ought to get there, and they'll tell you. Trust me, you don't have to ask them. How do you know who's in charge? They'll let you know. You don't have to wonder. Gift of leadership. Nothing wrong with that. But they're supposed to do a zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, these are those folks who are moved in their heart to help the unfortunate, those who are destitute, those who uh, are, find themselves in circumstances which require financial resources and emotional support and effort and, and sitting and, and encouraging. And these, uh, this is a gift where some people are moved by it. You put a person with mercy and a person with a gift of exhortation in a room, there will be a fight. Because something bad will happen, and the gift of per, the mercy, person with mercy is going to say, we ought to do something. And the person with exhortation is going to say, yeah, they should have been in a class. Look, they, they're the ones who made all the bad decisions. They don't need our help. And so this is what happens. The spiritual gifts are functioning, and we're, we're running into our personalities are clashing. They say, well, this is too hard. That's why we need the gospel. And this is the kind of community the gospel develops, where a bunch of people who are different from one another get into a room, and the work of God moves forward. He said, well, how, what do we do with those clashes? We trust the grace of God, that God will extend his grace to one another. So we have all these examples. The gospel changes everything. It gives me a new way to think about myself. I think about myself in relation to God through God's mercy, so therefore I see my relationship with others as a function of God's mercy expressed to them through me. We might think of it this way. We are not a reservoir of God's mercy and grace. We are a river. We receive God's mercy and grace, and the job now is in our relationships with one another to pass it along. Okay, three quick comments on this passage, and then we're going to take communion together. The gospel changes everything, a new way to look at God. So here's a silly question. I know it's silly. It's just how I think. If God texted you, and he wanted to hang out Saturday, would you look forward to it? I mean, I'm not talking about going to church. Like, God texts you, hey, what's up? I don't know what emoji God would use. Want to hang out Saturday? What what would you, what what do you mean hang out? He said, whatever you normally do, I want to come hang out. Um, Somebody, how about not what I normally do? We'll do something different. So if God himself wanted to hang out on a Saturday night, 
Would we look forward to it? So why do I ask that silly question? Because we somehow have turned God into this thing, this glowy orb, and God wants a relationship. Remember Garden of Eden, he was walking around in the cool of the day looking to hang out. You will never want to answer that text if you think God is mean and not merciful. The gospel gives us a new way to understand God, that his mercy is great, and what he is looking to do is generate in us an affection for him, where if he were to text us, we say, why would I want to do anything other than hang out with you? Where else would I possibly want to be? Okay, next question. They get more annoying as they go. When is your favorite time to worship? When is your favorite? This is a trick question. Some of you already know the answer. When's your favorite time to worship? Answer, you're always worshiping. Just the question is who or what? So the issue here is not whether or not we will worship from Romans 12 and 2. The issue is who are we going to worship and what are we going to worship? So since we are always worshiping, if we're going to look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, and it says... uh, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The question is not, okay, what am I going to do to worship? Okay, I'll make sure two weeks out of four to be down at church on Sunday morning. And then, you know, probably on Friday, I'm going to turn the radio station to the Christian station so it feels like I get a little midweek vibe going. So what, what the Bible is calling us to do, what does it look like to be an employee that worships God? That, that's the kind of question. What does it mean for me to be a boss who's going to be a boss who also as an act of leading others at work worships God? What does it mean to be an owner of a business and, and have my uh, operation of my business function as, an, as a worship of God? And listen, what we're not saying is disconnected. So I worship God at work by working really hard and giving 10%. Right? And maybe somebody, that's not what we're saying. What does it mean to do the activity of my job and say, I want to do this to such a degree that it is not as though I'm working for this guy or for this prophet. I am working because, because I want to, I want to, I want to bring glory to God. What does it look like? What does it look like to come home from work as an act of worship? What does it look like to be a parent where I parent children as an act of worship, not merely for my own, uh, desires or motivation, but instead to be a parent that says, I wonder what it means to glorify God as a parent. What does it mean in my marriage? To be a spouse that, that is not merely being married because, because you're married and what else are you going to do, I guess, or you know, whatever, wherever you're at in that. It's, I am married, and so what does it look like to be a spouse that's an act of worship? You can ask this about any area of your life that you might consider. What does it look like? Many of us, as we get older, what does it look like to provide care for my aging parents as an act of worship to God? What, is, what, is that, what does that look like? What does it look like in the midst of profound difficulty and suffering and illness to endure through that as an act of worship? Not all worship God when I'm healed, but what does it mean in the midst of the profound suffering to do this as an act of worship. That's what the gospel changes. We don't put worship on a Sunday or when we turn the Christian radio station on. Worship is, what does my life look like in this moment, in this relationship, in this circumstance, if I want the glory to be given to God? And if you don't know the answer to that, that's why you got stuck in a, in a church with a bunch of weirdos. 
Because odds are somebody in the room has been through it and they may be able to give you some hints. May have to talk to each other on that one though. Okay, last one. This is, this is really annoying. This is going to annoy you to death, so I'll say it. I'll just be, pull the band-aid off, right? Serving Christ in the body of Christ or as a function of the body of Christ in the community is assumed in the New Testament. Serving Christ in the body of Christ or as a function of the body of Christ in the community is assumed in the New Testament. To receive God's grace, to receive God's mercy, and to fail to use our gifts is by definition in this passage thinking of ourselves too highly. To receive God's grace and mercy and fail to use my gifts as a function of the body of Christ or in the body of Christ is by definition to think of myself too highly. Yeah, everybody else does the, does the, does the labor. You know, I'm, I'm kind of busy for that action. So by definition, to fail to use my gift in, in the body of Christ or as a function of the body of Christ in the community around us is to fail to see ourselves. That the application of seeing ourselves rightly is humble service to others either in the body of Christ or as a member of the body of Christ in the community around us. The gospel changes everything, gives us a new way to think about God and a new way to see ourselves, especially in the body of Christ.